Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Italy has elected its most right-wing government since World War II and with it, in all likelihood, the nation's first female Prime Minister. Giorgio Maloney's Brothers of Italy party received around 25% of the vote, reflecting a sharp rise in its fortunes since the last election back in 2018. It will be able to govern through a coalition with Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia and the radical right-wing party Northern League. So what does this mean for Italy and European politics generally, where far-right parties have enjoyed some electoral success recently in countries, including the likes of Sweden, France, Poland and Hungary? Sofia Amasari is a PhD candidate from Griffith University researching populist right-wing politics and joins us now on the line. Sophia, welcome to Triple R. Hi, Dylan. Thank you. And so what should we make of Giorgia Maloney's success in Italy? Yeah, so it is important to observe that far-right politics has long been legitimated in the Italian political arena, so it has never been a taboo, let's say. And this can be traced back to 1994, when Berlusconi and its centre-right party, Forza Italia, formed a coalition and entered government with the post-fascist National Alliance, which was the predecessor of Brothers of Italy, and the far-right league. So really, from that moment onwards, the distinction between centre-right and far-right in Italy has always been blurred. With the centre-right taking up the issues, even the discourses of the far-right, for example, by adopting harsh positions on immigration or being taught on law and order issues. Now, uh, in the following decades, Italy's right-wing coalition has always remained the same, apart from two main changes. So National Alliance, as I said, has been replaced by Brothers of Italy, even though the ideology and even the personnel of the two parties are very similar. And the second is that if between the 90s and most of the 2010s, the core of the coalition was the centre-right, was Berlusconi's Forza Italia, now the balance has shifted towards the far-right, towards the league first, like three, four years ago, and now Brothers of Italy. And the difference in that sense between the league and Brothers of Italy is that the league has already been in government twice under the current leadership of Matteo Salvini. Um, first with the populist five-star movement, and secondly, during the COVID pandemic, in this large technocratic government led, led by a coalition of all main Italian parties, including the centre-left, for instance, with the only exceptions of Meloni's Brothers of Italy. So Meloni's party is the only one that has never compromised, and it's the only one that cannot be blamed by Italian citizens for anything, because it hasn't been in power yet. So Meloni's reputation is still untainted. Yeah, that's that's super interesting historical context to have. And, I mean, you mentioned that there is um, kind of a blurring, I suppose, of some of the positions that might be held by some of those parties. Is there anything that particularly is distinctive about the platform that Giorgio Meloni and the Brothers of Italy ran on? Yeah, uh, it is the fact that a party, it's not only a far-right party, but it's a post-fascist party. Mm because fascism represents the historical and ideological roots of the party. And we can see that, for instance, from the party's logo, 
which is this three-color flame, which was the symbol of the Italian social movement, the party that Mussolini's successor founded in, in the 1940s. And also by the fact, even more concerning, that some Brothers of Italy party officials, even very recently, have been seen as performing Roman salutes and so on. So that historical and cultural heritage is surely there. In terms of, you know, Giorgia Meloni herself, now, for instance, she was called doing Roman salutes, she would be politically dead. But it's true that she has this sort of ambiguous relationship with fascism. So we know that she has strong sympathies for Mussolini when she was younger, like, but during the this election campaign, she explicitly stated that Italy has consigned fascism to history. So she's obviously trying to portray herself as a legitimate leader, especially to the international audience. But at the same time, during this same campaign, she has made very ambiguous references. I think the most striking to me was the one in which she said, she said that if she got elected, things will change for those Italians who have had to stay quiet for so many years and not to say what they believe or they will lose their jobs. Now, there are only a few ideologies in Western democracies that are so stigmatized that if you express them openly, you could lose your job. And these are fascism, Nazism, racism, and so on. So she maintains this ambiguous relationship, maybe not with the fascist ideology, but surely with those nostalgic Italian citizens that are attracted by it. Yeah, and you say um, she, she's ambiguous there. I mean, d- does the the new government have policy, uh, though, um, that, that, that you can speak to? And I, I guess it's interesting you said that they can't be blamed yet, the Brothers of Italy, because they haven't held the sort of the, the, the powerful position in the, the coalition. But, you know, what is the track record of, of Georgia Maloney when it comes to, to policy? Yeah. Sure. Of course, during her campaign, she campaigned of the usual far-right issues, right? So immigration, security, against, I don't know, LGBT plus rights, and so on. But the point is that you really saw the difference between the campaign speeches and her victory speech, in which Meloni emphasized several times that hers will be a responsible government. She really wants to reassure domestic and economic elites and other powerful international actors such as European Union and the U.S., that she is a responsible leader. So in this sense, the main issues facing Italy and Europe in the upcoming months are the energy crisis and the inflation. So this will really be the focus of her political agenda in the short to midterm. I do not expect her to focus on immigration and law and order issues. And, uh, I mean, we, we sort of um, heard some commentators speak about what this means for um, Europe gen- generally, and I want to get to that in a moment. But in terms of the, the repercussions for Italy as a country and her sort of willingness, I suppose, to uh, talk about the fact that, you know, um, some people in Italy have been quiet for too long and, and to campaign on issues around identity politics and anti-immigration and that sort of thing. I mean, do you uh, anticipate that there might be any significant sort of backlash or, or persecution throughout Italian society as a result or influenced by the fact that Giorgio Maloney and her party has gained some legitimacy? Yeah, yeah, that's surely something that I fear. In fact, more than 
Yeah, the political consequences of it, I think the societal ones in the short term are going to be the most concerning. Because, as I told you, already Italy is <laughs> peculiar in that sense because, as I told you before, uh, far-right politics has been legitimized since the 90s. But in these past decades, far-right politics has really become increasingly normalized, not only in Italy, but globally, actually. And we can see how people feel less deterred from expressing their xenophobic views, their Islamophobic views, their queerphobic views, and act accordingly. So at the societal level, it may mean that citizens holding these ideas will be even more emboldened by, by Meloni's victory. And this, I personally think, that may have disastrous consequences for those ethnic, um, religious, and sexual minorities whom Meloni and her supporters consider as a threat to their identity. And it may bring to a deterioration of these minorities' rights and make their day-to-day life very hard. And, I mean, what challenges do you see... Um, the new government in Italy facing working within the EU and, and I guess also internationally, um, you know, w- w- when they, they come to, to work in sort of, you know, bilateral ways or in multilateral ways uh, um, in, within the EU and, and then more broadly? Yeah, I think their hands are pretty much constrained, especially in the case of a foreign policy crisis that we have, like the war in Ukraine. So, again, going back to the difference <laughs> during the campaign and after the campaign of Meloni's speeches, we can see that, for instance, related to the European Union, if during the campaign she stated that she wanted to renegotiate with the European Union this post-COVID recovery plan, which is just this enormous economic package of billions and billions of euros. Now she's already more quiet and collaborative about it. As regards her position on the war between Russia and Ukraine, she has always stood for Ukraine, trusting Italy's place in NATO and backing the continued supply of weapons to Ukraine. So she can't make any dramatic shifts in this regard, exactly because the international economic elites won't allow that. I found that very interesting that Salvini, the leader of the far-right league, was supposed to be the... Minister of Internal Affairs, as it had already been in the past. And we all knew that that was the sort of ministry that he wanted. And it looks like she's not going to give it to him, exactly because it will look bad to the eyes of the European Union, because the guy is now being processed for breach of international law, because he stopped the boat of immigrants coming through the Mediterranean Sea to Italy. So we can see how already she's very much aware that she can't act as she wants, and the international and economic elites are looking at her. Speaking with Sophia Amasari, a PhD candidate at Griffith University, about the recent uh, election in Italy and, and what looks to be the, the most far-right um, coalition government formed since World War II, and with it, um, the likely Prime Minister Giorgio, um, Giorgia Maloney. And it's sort of interesting to, to think about, I suppose, some of those um, mechanisms within the EU that might provide some means of constraining the extent to which a truly sort of, you know, um, far-right fascist agenda could take hold, of course, also in the context of 
the EU proposing to cut um, funds to Hungary owing con- to concerns about the country's kind of anti-democratic turn as well. But, I mean, in the context of the broader... Um, uh, ascendance, I suppose, of some right-wing parties across Europe in the likes of France, in Sweden, of course, in Hungary and, and Poland and some other places as well. Is it fair to draw links across those countries? And, and if so, what can we put this down to, the success of, of far-right countries in Europe in, in recent years? Yeah, surely they are, they are all part of a broader far-right movement that Again, it's not that it has witnessed a sudden surge just in the past year, but many of these far-right parties, which have been successful today, were formed between the 70s and the 80s. Just they had remained electorally marginal throughout most of the 90s. What happened since the turn of the century, which is so remarkable, is that most far-right parties have increased their electoral support. Many of them have entered parliament even in countries that have long resisted them. Let us think about Sweden and Germany, for example. And many have become among the biggest parties in the countries. So now in countries such as Italy, Sweden and France, the far right has become the strongest party on the right. Now, uh, how did we end up here? So surely it's a matter of, you know, the appetite for far-right politics and also the far-right political actors per se. In terms of um, the appetite for this politics among the electorate, I would say that there have been three crises that really have exacerbated (laughs) this politics of us versus them, which is at the basis of far-right politics, right? And these are 9-11, which has made Islamophobia central to the far-right discourse, the global financial crisis of 2008, which especially in the EU has boosted Euroscepticism, and the 2015 refugees crisis, which has represented a landmark landmark event in the mainstreaming of far-right ideas. And throughout these events, uh, far-right parties have increased their appeal among the sections of the population that feel left behind and alienated by mainstream parties, and by these dramatical societal changes, of course. So these voters feel threatened by immigration, multiculturalism, and so on. But this is only one side of the story, because then it has also been a matter of, you know, the political opponents of these far-right parties not being able to counteract them. And this has happened by coalition formation, so, you know, Mainstream right-wing parties usually have entered coalition with far-right parties. And this is, for instance, what has been going on since the 90s in Italy and what we're about to see in Sweden, more or less. And that's the easiest way to legitimize these parties because they become part of the mainstream. They have a voice in the policy-making processes. They become among those options that the electorate, the electorate can choose from. Is this, and, is this sort of these sort of trends part of why voter turnout slipped in Italy this time round? Because my, my understanding is that it's, you know, also at a, a low point that the number of people that came out and voted this time round. Absolutely. That was a very concerning fact from the Italian election that the turnout reached its lowest since the end of World War II. And it's now below two-thirds, so it's bad. <laughs> and it really reflects how, yeah, large sections of Italian citizens are completely disillusioned with their country's politics. 
And I find it very interesting that in public opinion surveys, the trust of Italian citizens towards political parties is always among the lowest in Europe. And it's obvious that Italian citizens are sick of politicians who promise a lot and deliver little, or politicians that get involved in corruption scandals and so on. So there is surely some sense of disillusion with mainstream politics in general. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Australian women are backsliding when it comes to economic participation and opportunity. The World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap shows since 2006, Australia dropped from 15th out of 153 countries to 50th, with the most dramatic decline being in Australia's Australian women's ability to participate, that is, to work and earn. Why is it so and what can the pandemic and feminist discourse do to help all Australian women to fully participate. And um, Christina Zavica is a Melbourne-based columnist and consultant who has worked in Australia, the US and the UK on human rights and gender equality campaigns. And she has written a fabulous little book called Leaning Out, A Fairer Future for Women at Work in Australia. It's out through Crikey Reads. And welcome to Triple R. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. And congrats on the book. And, and it feels like it's a moment for this book to come out, um, where, you know, women's work, women's pay, care work, the care economy, all of these things um, are being discussed. Um, maybe I'd be interested to, to hear you characterise where we're at. What is that this moment that we're in right now? Yeah, it, it is a moment. In the foreword of the book, I tell the story of the how the book came to fruition. So it was right after we came out of the fourth and final lockdown here in Melbourne, and my eldest child had outgrown absolutely everything in her wardrobe, as they do at that age. And I was shopping at Kmart and Arwen Summers, the publisher at Hardy Grant, rang me up and she said, I have an idea. Do you have a minute? And I was actually across the street from the cafe where Arwen and I usually meet semi-regularly for coffee. And I said, I can be at the usual in half an hour. And she said, I just think you have a book in you about women, work, where we're at. And it was no secret that the pandemic had disproportionately impacted women in a devastating way. And that was coming off of, as you say, this continued backward slide over the last, you know, 10 plus years in terms of the global economic forums, gender rankings. So we kind of came up with this book. And I really I said to Arwen, I said, you know, what really just puzzles me is why women in Australia are still being told to lean in, that there's this dominant strain of empowerment feminism, that in my experience, as you said, I've lived and worked in different countries has really taken up a lot of the prime real estate in the women's movement here in Australia long, and I mean long after it's gone out of fashion elsewhere in the world, um, you know, which I recount in, this, in the book when I talk about some of my quote-unquote misadventures and power posing. And the leaning <laughs> out bit was, you know, we had evidence, we have research that's telling us that because of this, the last 10 years, and particularly because of the impacts of the pandemic, one in four women are thinking about leaving the workplace for good. And that will just entrench this backward slide that will be devastating for women's economic, long-term economic security. But the irony is they're still being told to lean in. There's still this dominant strain of empowerment feminism. So we really wanted to kind of take that on um, and also explore, because as you say, it's very zeitgeisty. There is a moment. I think I truly believe, and I think that's why the book is, is ultimately optimistic. I do think the pandemic has led to a breakthrough. And I talk 
talk about that in the book, about how it's led to this moment, this realization of the fragile foundations of women's working lives and how this empowerment feminism hasn't delivered. And it's time for a reappraisal. And I think we're having that reappraisal and we're demanding different things. And that's going to lead to considerable change. And you characterise that um, form of leaning feminism as, as often revolving around the notion of choice and that simply if you know you, you speak up, you're more assertive in the workplace, then therefore you'll kind of get what you want out of engaging in that kind of a way that might be a more traditional approach that a man would take, for instance. But you highlight in the book how that doesn't actually lead to substantial change at all. Why is it that that brand of feminism or that ideology, I suppose, has remained so steadfast in Australia while, as you say, it's fallen out of fashion in in other places around the world? Um, Probably the explanation partly lies in the fact that lean-in feminism, so lean-in feminism came about in 2013 with the publication of Sheryl Sandberg's iconic book, Lean In. Um, She wasn't the only proponent of this, quote, empowerment feminism, but that's probably the most high profile. Something else happened here in Australia in 2013. That was the election of a coalition government. And they just loved this explanation for gender inequality, that it was all down to individual women's choices. And that got them off the hook for having to do anything in terms of tackling the structural drivers of gender inequality, the structural drivers of the gender pay gap. And when I say structural Structural drivers that can sound a bit academic, but I'm talking about things like the undervaluing of women's work. So if you're in a female-dominated care profession, for example, we don't pay that very well because that's expect work that we expect women to do for free out of love. It's the unequal distribution of caring responsibilities in heterosexual couples. It's um, you know it's gender discrimination. It's the fact that one in two women still experience pregnancy discrimination. Those are all the drivers. But if you can just blame women's choices. If you can say they're not confident enough, they don't ask enough for that pay rise, then and you you can then divert the women, fix the women. You don't have to fix the systems. And in my observation is that I don't think that the previous government, um, the various iterations of the coalition government, was at all interested in fixing the systems. And one of the statistics that I quote in the book, if you're a bit of a geek like me, You will do things like, and I think that the previous government really wished that I would get a hobby, you would go through each one of their women's economic security statements, and I would do a word search, and I would look for the number of times the word choice appeared, and the number of times that the word discrimination appeared. And in the last one, the word choice appeared 14 times, and the word discrimination appeared four, what was it, um, five times, and it was four of those when Kate Jenkins, the sex discrimination commissioner's job title. So that was a government for whom the concept of discrimination didn't exist, for whom these structural drivers didn't exist. And they could literally just invest in what I call, I called the last women's economic security statement a girl boss budget. It was just invest a limited amount of money in these kind of empowerment type initiatives to fix women while doing nothing to fix systems. And, you know, the the recent federal election um, showed women to be angry. Yes. And I think, you know, not just angry, but, you know, hopeful too, I guess. But, you know, we, we saw rallies of, of women in Canberra. Uh, we saw the rise in uh, independent candidates, women independents, uh, and a calling out of, of the, the lack of women in, in the government of the, of the day. I mean, what's your sense of now we've had a change of government, what might change? Yeah, I I write in the final chapter of the book um, 
so when I, uh, an observation that I had, when I first came to Australia, I was really puzzled that the quote unquote women's vote wasn't as decisive as in my experience it had been. Because as you say, I've worked in the U.S. I'm originally from the U.S. Um, I married a Brit and ended up in London for seven years where I worked at the Human Rights Commission in their media and campaigns department. And we were able to really influence policy because and laws because the governments of the day knew that they needed the women's vote. Um, here, that didn't prove decisive. And in the last election, 2019, everyone thought, um, well, the one before the last election now, um, that that was going to prove decisive, that it was finally going to be the tipping point for the women's vote in Australia, because it, things had been changing for a while since around 2000. And it didn't. And I remember calling a few different um, experts and pollsters to find out why. And I spoke to Professor Ian McAllister, who does the Australian Election Survey. And he's, he heard my American accent and he heard me talking about my experience in Britain. He was a little bit like, ah, oh, Christina, you're used to what he called a rights-based political culture. And he's like, we don't have that here. Um, women don't vote as women thinking about their rights particularly around gender equality, as front of mind. And I thought, oh, that's a bit disappointing, um, more than a bit disappointing. And then right before the election, uh, Jenna Price at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age interviewed Ian McAllister again about a couple of years after I spoke to him. And he said, everything to do with women is going to be huge at this election. And I remember texting Jenna and going, wow. That's that's a change. That's a change. And I think what that represents, what the last election result represents, is that there has we have tipped that. Women are voting. Women now have a rights-based political culture. And that has put politicians of all stripes on notice. And I think you can see that. So that these issues were front and center at the job summit, which, again, was the same week that the book came out. And I couldn't have been more thrilled to have the opportunity to write a book that could come out so quickly at a time when these issues are so topical and would have an opportunity to, in some way, influence the debate. And you could just see it was front and center at the job summit. And it's just such a massive change. And this is a story I've told since, which isn't in the book, but I was walking down the street with my headphones in listening to the job summit. Um, and I bumped into uh, my friend of mine, Eve Reese, um, also a writer and historian and Claire Wright on the high street having a coffee. And they said, Oh, we're having a coffee. Do you want to join us? What are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm just listening to the job summit. <laughs> and I'm getting a bit teary. And they thought, Oh, Christina, it's just so like you to be getting a bit teary listening to the job summit. And I just said, Well, if you've been, you know, laboring in the wilderness for 10 years on these issues as I have here in Australia and I'm not the only one there are others and if you're out there I see you I see you um, it was suddenly a feast of plenty things like the care and care infrastructure the gender pay all these things were on the agenda and they, these experts were no longer being silenced they were being heard and they were setting the agenda and that was just such a change Speaking with Christina Zivico about her brand new book, Leaning Out, A Fairer Future for Work, Women at Work in Australia, which is out through Crikey Reads. And um, your, your book notes how there has been a sort of growth, I suppose, in egalitarian attitudes to gender roles over the years. So suggesting that as a society, we are becoming more aware of, um, you know, the fact that women, men and women should share a more equitable, um, you know, part of the domestic labour, for instance, and there should be um, more ability for, for women to 
sort of to be in, into the workforce as much as, as men are. But, but nonetheless, uh, people are still generally um, liable to fall back on traditional gender roles, for instance, when a couple might have a child and the woman becomes the, the main caregiver. I wonder if you can speak about some of the structural changes, particularly in relation to paid parental leave, that could really um, shift the balance there, you know, aligning with, I suppose, the broader shift in, in attitudes across the board. Yeah, so that's interesting. So the, what we call the chores gap internationally, that, that's the difference in the amount of time that men versus women spend in heterosexual relationships doing the unpaid care and the unpaid domestic work. And internationally, the chores gap has closed by about seven minutes in 15 years. So no country, well, most countries in the world haven't really correct that. There was a lot of change or some change after the 1970s, a bit into the 1980s, and then it plateaued and it's been pretty stagnant. And the reason that that hasn't changed, there have been a couple of theories around that. And one theory is, and I'm not sure if I can swear <laughs> on radio, but okay, is, is the sort of men are a bit shit um, theory of it, is that they won't do it, they don't want to do it. And while I concede that some men are a bit shit, and that's a partial explanation for why the chores gap has failed to close here in Australia, that gets back to that choices discussion that we were having earlier, is that you assume, I think, blaming men for not taking on more of the load at home and assuming that that's purely down to their choice is a bit like blaming women choices for the gender pay gap. You have to be very careful because both assume that those choices are made in a complete vacuum. And what we know about the policies that support men to take on more caring work in Australia are woefully inadequate. So men are twice as likely to have their requests for flexible work turned down. Australia has some of the most unequal parental leave arrangements for men in favor of women in the world. And what we know is that once those those dynamics are set up in the first kind of year of a child's life, it's very hard to unpack that. Even if the, the woman goes back to work, that precedent has already been set because she's been the one at home. And in other countries, and I know we always point to the Nordic countries, but sorry, <laughs> sorry, not sorry, that they have gotten this right, um, where they have introduced paid parental leave equality, meaning that men get a significant chunk of time comparable to that of their, their female partners, and it's paid at a something like a salary replacement rate. And most importantly, you'll hear a lot about this over the next year, I promise you, you will, something called a use it or lose it provision, where we say, this is for you, dad. And if you don't use it, you don't get it. That has changed men's behavior, so their uptake of parental leave from around 3 to 10% to around 60 to 90% Gee, in a decade. That's in fascinating, decade. isn't it? Yeah. Wow. And I mean, one thing, and well, we're almost out of time, but we, we have heard um, Sam Mostyn, head of CEO Women, um, and we've, we've seen um, her and others appointed to new committees in government, and, and we're seeing the care, uh, focus in on caregivers, those 
in employment, um, um, providing care. And I mean, this would have, you know, came up in the job summit as well. What do you think is going to happen in this space with regards to seeing carers, not only, um, you know, those workers being paid adequately and respected in, in um, our, our society, but also enabling others to access employment or more full employment? What do you think is going to happen? I think and I, there's a chapter in my book called From Career Feminism to Care Feminism. And we're basically, in my view, on the dawn of a new era of care feminism, moving away from that sort of lean-in empowerment type career feminism. And that care feminism values, recognizes and values the fundamental role of care and care infrastructure and the mostly women who do that work. And we're having those conversations now in a way that we have not been having in the last 10 years. And that is one of the key differences, I think, um, in how the, the pandemic has really led to a breakthrough. Because we've reached years ago, I, I you know, I read a report about how the undervaluing of women's care work was leading to a caring time bomb. And over the course of the pandemic, we reached the end of the fuse of that caring time bomb. We know what that looks like. The shortages in aged care, the fact that we had to call the military into aged care, the shortages in early years education and care, teaching professions, nursing, they're all going out on strike now. That's what that looks like. It's it's reached a sense of urgency where I think it just it needs to be addressed. And those are the, the key care feminism is now a central question of 21st century feminism. We haven't quite sort of touched on um, intersectionality as well, just just briefly, but I mean, in the current federal parliament, it's not just that there's a a greater proportion of women, there's a greater ethnic diversity as well than we've had um, in in the past. Do you see that that those sorts of, um, that will be, I suppose, factored into any uh, changes and and constructive policy debates going forward, how there might be particular groups of women, women who face that additional disadvantage based on being from a particular kind of ethnic minority group, for instance? Yes, I, I do think so. Um, one of the like one of the popular phrases for the last ten years of feminism has been "What gets measured gets managed." So we've set, that's launched a thousand feminist data ships. Let's measure this, and the presumption is if we measure it, we'll manage it. Not always true, particularly over the last ten decade. But one of the things that we haven't been measuring, for example, is the size of the gender pay gap for different groups of women. They do that in the UK. They do that in the US. The um, Gender pay gap is often significantly larger for disabled women, for um, ethnic minority women, um, culturally and linguistically diverse women, black women. And I've always said here in Australia, if what gets measured gets managed, what does it say? about the things that we're not prepared to measure? Does that say mm. that we just don't even care about managing it? That's going to change in... in um, the next year or two, they're going to start the workplace gender equality agency is going to start managing that. So that um, measuring it. So that's just an example of just one of those changes that we'll see that takes a more intersectional lens to issues. And your the title of your book, Leaning Out. Yes, it, it um, sort of references, I guess, that the leaning in, um, but at the same time that it does also, sh- you know, highlight that many women are sort of stepping out of the workforce or, or choosing to work fewer hours, choosing, I put in inverted commas, at the moment, particularly following the pandemic. What do you think will make the difference here 
um, Christina now with with some women who, for whatever happened in their lives during that pandemic period in the lockdowns, particularly here in Melbourne, what might make the difference to to stop that slide? I guess. Yeah, I think the changed conversation around burnout. Um, I've got a chapter in the book about burnout pandemic style, um, which is. One of the chapters that people keep telling me has resonated with them, probably more so than any chapter in the book. So the burnout gender gap doubled over the course of the pandemic. Women have always been more likely to experience burnout than men. But the changed conversation is where maybe with the empowerment feminism, we would have turned that into an individual problem and said, how about some yoga or Pilates (laughs) at lunch? How about your wellness? Let's work on your wellness. We now recognize that burnout is born from is a structural issue. It's born from these structural inequalities that contribute to the burnout and they need structural solutions. And that changed conversation around burnout, I think is another real indication of the, the kind of changed feminism <laughs> that I think we're going to chart a course forward over the next few years. Well, thank you so much for your book. Um, commend it to others to read. Um, really enjoyed it. Leaning out a fairer future for women at work in Australia. It's from Crikey Reads. Get your hands on it. Christina Zavik has been our guest, and um, it's been great having you at Triple R. Thank you Thanks so much. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. Australia's media is becoming less diverse. It's something we've been tracking on this program for years, especially the declining community media and the rise in news deserts. And last week, independent member for the federal seat of Goldstein and former foreign correspondent Zoe Daniel moved a motion in the House of Representatives for a judicial inquiry into media diversity. She and her crossbench colleagues have also been at the forefront of debate on the National Anti-Corruption Commission. And Zoe Daniel is with us now. Welcome, Zoe, to Triple R. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. And, I mean, what would a judicial inquiry into media diversity achieve um, in in your kind of plan for it, should it happen? Well, this is a a step that was recommended by a Senate inquiry that reported under the last parliament. And there was a majority report from that committee that was backed by Labor senators saying that a judicial inquiry was needed. So... In effect, that Senate inquiry took a look at the media concentration in Australia. It found that Australia has one of the most concentrated media markets in the world, that, as you said, a lot of suburban and regional media organisations have closed in recent history. I think it's about 255 organisations that have closed in the last few years. Several thousand journalists have lost their jobs. But also there were changes that were made to media laws back in 2017 that have further concentrated the media market because you saw, of course, Channel 9 take over the Fairfax Papers. So you now have, for example, people potentially reading, watching and listening to content that's all coming from one organisation. And together with that, you obviously have the substantial presence of the Murdoch Press as well as Seven West Media and then the ABC. So that's sort of the shape of our media market in this country. And there are lots of questions too around oversight because the Press Council and ACMA that look after print and broadcast media are are in effect voluntary toothless tigers. And, I mean, I wonder if you can explain specifically what a judicial inquiry might achieve compared to, say, a, a parliamentary or Senate inquiry. Well, I think it's really important that politicians are at arm's length 
from this because it is a political hot potato mm. um, and certainly since I've reposed the idea of a judicial inquiry that's self-evident that this is very divisive. Um, so I think that if we want to take an objective look at it and that within that context we need to look at all of those large media organisations including the ABC where, where I used to work um, and those oversight issues and just what does need to change and how that might look, it's far better to have it at arm's length from government. So there, there were calls for a Royal Commission, as you know, and more than half a million people signed Kevin Rudd's petition, but that was really focused on the Murdoch press. My thinking is a lot broader than that, as of someone who's been a journalist and who's sort of witnessed the impact of those news deserts, particularly in the United States, the rise of disinformation, the take-up of conspiracy theories. I think this is a a really big issue for our democracy. Yeah, and it is interesting and I suppose that's a, a big reason why we wanted to speak with you this morning is the role of a politician in, in media diversity isn't always in the in the um, guys that, you, that you're putting forward this, that, you know, we, we need more media to have more scrutiny of government, but there you are doing that. Um, mm. I mean, what is the, the general appetite in the parliament, do you think, for a judicial inquiry into media diversity? Well, I think there's more of an appetite behind the scenes than might be evident at the forefront. I think because of the political nature of this, the government is saying publicly, oh, no, 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 we can do other things at a policy level without having a judicial inquiry. You know, we've had inquiries. We know what the issues are. Uh, we don't need another inquiry. Um, but behind the scenes, a lot of those in Labor and, and in the opposition uh, and on the crossbench uh, do favour a form of inquiry. It, it's not the only way to skin the cat, though. So I will continue to work on the specific pieces that I think need attention. So increasing diversity in regional and suburban areas, for example, and what policy settings could be used to foster those sorts of media organisations, funding of the ABC and SBS, which is something that this government has talked about, and also those regulatory issues that I mentioned and, and whether those organisations are doing their job. So it, it's a long-run project. It's not something that will happen overnight, but I do feel very strongly... Uh, particularly given what you've seen happen in the United States in, re in recent history, which in large part was to do with the seeding of disinformation into the media, which then culminated in the storming of the US Capitol building. You know, I think that's a salutary lesson uh, for those of us who observe that in other parts of the world. Yeah, and I suppose that it's interesting to think of this as, as an issue that, you know, um, you're, you're, I suppose, starting the conversation in Parliament and, uh, you know, there's so much packed into this sort of broad area of, um, you know, the state of our media in this country and the extent to which it serves our democracy. There's regulation, there's, there's um, you know, cross-ownership of various different platforms. There's, there's a lot in there. We've seen with the independents, um, you know, the likes of sort of Helen Haynes who um, put up her um, anti-corruption commission bill, which we'll talk about in a moment, but um, uh, some years ago, and that's now heavily informed what the government has done in that space. Are you anticipating mm. that in raising this in Parliament, you will really sort of push forward and encourage the conversation to get to a place later on where there is broader buy-in from your colleagues on the crossbench, but also in terms of the, the government and opposition as well? 
Yeah, exactly that. Uh, I think Helen Haynes and before her, Cathy McGowan and before Cathy the Greens um, have been involved in elevating this conversation around integrity and the need for a National Corruption Commission. You saw Zali Stegall really elevate the conversation around climate policy in the last term of the Parliament. So one of the ways to achieve policy change is to elevate these issues, to push them into the public conversation, to encourage this conversation and debate, to make these issues mainstream issues, to educate people or explain to people why this is important and get them to to talk about it and, you know, um, test the different positions or different policy settings that may perhaps be useful. So, yeah, very much I do view it through that kind of framing. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, integrity um, has resonated and has resonated, uh, you know, at the lead up to the election. And now we have the National Anti-Corruption Commission um, bill. We, we, we've got the, you know, you can see the details of that. Where is that at? Where's the discussions with, with you and the government at, Zoe? Well, I'm very much immersed in looking at the detail of both the bill itself and the explanatory memorandum between them they run to several hundred pages so I've spent a weekend really going through that language and trying to consider the real world impact of some of the key clauses in the legislation Um, but the process is that although it was tabled in the house it was sent straight to a joint senate and house inquiry which will analyse the legislation and take submissions and that will go to potentially changing some of that language, fine-tuning the bill and then the expectation is that it should, if that's a smooth process, come back to the House before the end of the year. Whether we actually get to the point of voting it through by the time Parliament rises, which is on the 1st of December, is debatable. Um, but that that's the process from here. So you can imagine that um, all of the crossbenchers like myself are really going through that bill um, and trying to consider just what the impact of it will be and whether it's strong enough. And there's been a, a real zoning in on the exceptional circumstances clause, that is the requirement to only hold public hearings under exceptional circumstances when there's a clear public interest in doing so. As it stands currently, is that kind of a, a major sticking point for you? Yeah, it is. And I think the main problem with it is that there's no definition of exceptional circumstances. So the concern is that that becomes a value judgment or indeed a vexed issue for the commissioner or or the commissioners. Um, And also that that becomes grounds for legal action in the courts that could prove a break on investigations. If someone is potentially under investigation, you may end up with a whole lot of lawyers saying, well, hang on, we're going to now have a debate in the court system about what exceptional circumstances are and whether there is a trigger that is valid for a public hearing. And that may well delay uh, the investigative process. I have a question about whether the term exceptional circumstances is needed when, as you said, you already have 
the term in the public interest there. And there are also a number of other parameters that the commissioners would need to consider, one of which is potential reputational damage um, before holding a public hearing. So it's a question of, well, what do you need that extra um, oversight of exceptional circumstances as well, which could prove more problematic than anything. Yeah, interesting. And I, I guess the fine-tuning process, um, th- there's an opportunity there to, to rectify that. Well, there, there is, although there has been some speculation, as you would know, in the press that the government and the opposition got together and, and sort of made a bit of a backroom deal, and that's why that term exceptional circumstances is in the bill because public hearings are probably the main sticking point for the opposition. So then there's a question for me. Well, firstly, I would hate to think that the two major parties had got together to protect themselves under once-in-a-generation legislation that's really designed to restore public trust in leadership. Um, But the second thing is that if they vote together, then it prevents changes being made because they will have the numbers. Yeah. And Zoe, we we can't let a good opportunity go to waste. You're, of course, a a former journalist and you've put the spotlight squarely on media concentration and media diversity in Australia. We're in the the final days of our big subscriber drive here at Triple R, encouraging people to become um, subscribers to the station and and keep us doing what we do for another year. I guess from where you sit, what is the role of of community media um, in Australia's media landscape? Well, community media becomes all the more important as you see this fragmentation of commercial media that we've seen in recent years. And as we've already said, lots of regional and suburban media have closed down to the extent that a lot of suburban areas no longer have any local media. So community media is really filling that gap. And having lived and worked in the US for a long time where radio stations like NPR rely almost entirely on philanthropy and and the the subscription model, I definitely think there's a real place for that. And it it really is important for our communities to see uh, a station like Triple R continue to thrive. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.